Do you hear what I hear? The thunderous clickety-clack of a new pair of cha-cha heels stomping down the stairs. The ragged breaths of a bearded daddy forcing his way down your chimney. The crackling of an electric chair decked in holly and festooned in twinkling lights. These are all the festive sounds you might have encountered at John Waters' Christmas party, which he had hosted annually in his Baltimore home since 1966, up until the arrival of the pandemic. Christmas is a holiday that Waters claims to enjoy unironically, despite proudly displaying the Unabomber's birdhouse on his mantle for past guests of his seasonal soirees. While not entertaining at his home for the foreseeable future, Waters' one-man show, A John Waters Christmas, is currently touring across the nation. Originally based on his essay, Why I Love Christmas, from his 1986 compendium of obsessions, Crackpot, A John Waters Christmas now incorporates novelty songs such as Here Comes Fatty Claus and an ever-changing array of his trademark topical musings. An excerpt from Why I Love Christmas reads as follows. Being a traditionalist, I'm a rabid sucker for Christmas. In July, I'm already worried that there are only 146 shopping days left. What are you getting me for Christmas? I carp to fellow bathers who haven't even decided what to do for Labor Day. As each month follows, I grow more and more obsessed. Around October, I startle complete strangers by bursting into my off-key rendition of Joy to the World. I'm always the little drummer boy for Halloween, a grouchy one at that, since the inconsiderate stores haven't even put up their Christmas decorations yet. November 1st kicks off the jubilee of consumerism, and I'm so riddled with the holiday season that the mere mention of a stocking stuffer sexually arouses me. In many ways, Waters' continued fascination with making the Yuletide gay is an extension of the recurring themes that have always defined his career. A celebration of excess, the bizarre pageantry of Catholicism, and the indiscriminate mixing of the high and the low. Waters claims to send over 2,000 Christmas cards a year. Among the most infamous are erotic pinups featuring Divine, Edith Massey, and Jean Hill embroiled in a variety of naughty holiday tableaus. In one, Divine is pictured in a leopard print dress after a manic Christmas shopping spree, clutching gift bags from Gucci and Tiffany's and a fistful of Daddy's credit cards. In another, Edith Massey is depicted as a merry dominatrix in full leather regalia, whipping a loyal and subservient Santa. To complete the trifecta, Jean Hill is photographed sharing a post-coital cigarette under a pink satin bedspread with one of Santa's virile and muscular little helpers. It is evident from these photos that the birth of Christ is a joyous occasion for the Dreamlanders, and that receiving reindeer droppings under your tree is a sign of good things to come in the new year. From the 90s onward, John Waters' career has expanded to encompass Hollywood productions, star-studded casts, immersive conceptual art installations, wildly successful comedy tours and literary pursuits, and a reputation as one of America's most cherished and enduring professional wits. How does a raucous summer camp in Kent, Connecticut, a short-lived true crime reality show, an unfinished children's film about benevolent meat thieves, a late-night acid trip soundtracked by Dionne Warwick, 
and an ill-fated interview with Little Richard set the stage for John Waters' ascent to esteemed filth elder and beloved international treasure? Join me under the mistletoe to find out. Many blessings are upon us, for we are thrilled to receive a special visit from the Prince of Puke himself, the unflappable Bishop of Bile, the indefatigable Ambassador of Anality, the Sacred Emperor of Excrement, Mr. John Waters. I'm your regional filth correspondent and devoted trash collector Kamikaze Jones, and this is Pure Garbage, an oral examination of John Waters. Presented by Wussy Magazine, in collaboration with Out TV and Double Scorpio. Whether getting your stocking stuffed by the Grinch on the outskirts of Whoville, or getting cream pied by Krampus behind the dumpster at IKEA, Double Scorpio is sure to make you scream, It's a wonderful life this holiday season, even if you're home alone. The true spirit of giving and receiving, Double Scorpio. For a wholesome cinematic experience, choose Double Scorpio. Pure Garbage, Episode 7, One Man's Trash. The prettiest and most talented girl in school, and yet she socializes with drapes. We're squares, Allison. And squares gotta stick together. Yeah, but drapes are people too. They just look different. Maybe Crybaby can sing. Something cool, something hap. And where did you learn those vulgar jazz words? Your poor dead parents would turn over in their graves. It's those jukebox records she listens to. Honey, his kind of music isn't even on the hit parade. After the unexpected critical and commercial success of Hairspray, Waters tweaked his simmering teenager-on-the-brink hormonal formula for 1990s nostalgic rock and roll musical Crybaby, a film which continued to champion the spirit of the adolescent rebel in the face of the suffocating suburban normalcy of 1950s Baltimore. Crybaby is a love letter to juvenile delinquents, and for contemporary viewers functions in similar ways to the musical Grease, only tackier and with less of a sheen of respectability. To this day, it is the only Waters film over which studios were in a bidding war, and subsequently boasted the largest budget of his career thus far at $12 million. With this unprecedented level of studio backing, Waters was able to secure a wide variety of Hollywood talent to participate in the picture, while maintaining his penchant for subversive casting decisions. Johnny, you've been quoted as saying that in this movie, you kind of make fun of yourself. Yeah. What do you mean? One of the big reasons why I did it, aside from the fact that it was a great opportunity to work with uh, one of the best uh, directors around, best filmmakers, was to uh, was to make fun of the labels that had been put on me and the and the uh, image that had been sold to people of me, and which is something I had nothing to do with. Um, so yeah, it's it 
it was a great opportunity to make fun of uh, a product, which people I've, I guess I've become or something. The actor Johnny Depp, then a teen idol most prominently known from the police procedural program 21 Jump Street, was hoping to work with auteurs to tackle more challenging and eccentric parts after being disillusioned by the mundane trappings of his television alter ego. The role of the unbearably handsome orphan, gang leader, and wayward troubadour Wade Crybaby Walker would be his first starring role in a feature film. Joining him was newcomer Amy Locaine as his goody-two-shoes, itching-to-be-bad paramour Allison, plus appearances from Warhol superstar Joe D'Alessandro, B-movie queen Susan Tyrell as hard-living grandmother Ramona Ricketts, frontman of the Stooges and rock-and-roll bad boy Iggy Pop, and 70s sex symbol Joey Heatherton, amusingly cast against type as a frantic religious fanatic. Controversial former porn actress Tracy Lords was cast as the hyper-femme high school vamp Wanda Woodard, while heiress and former abductee and co-conspirator of the Symbionese Liberation Army Patricia Hurst was cast as her blithely oblivious mother. With these casting decisions, Waters imbued his films with an air of tabloid notoriety, while dismantling traditional archetypes of femininity in a more sly and subtextual way than in his earlier efforts with Divine. This send-up of conventional feminine wiles is also evident in the character of Mona Hatchetface Malnorowski. Hatchetface was originally a character written to star in her own film, conceived with Divine in mind before his untimely death. During the casting process, Hatchetface was described as having the body of Jane Mansfield and the face of Margaret Hamilton. Print advertisements were placed that simply requested, Wanted, girl with a good body and an alarming face who is proud of it. The part was eventually awarded to Kim McGuire, who was reportedly unrecognizable out of character to John Waters years later. And you, Miss Malnorowski, by the way, that's a shame about your face. There's nothing the matter with my face. I got character. As always, Waters got a particular thrill out of infiltrating mainstream media spaces and telling vulgar anecdotes to an easily scandalized audience. Do you feel that by becoming more mainstream, you're compromising your integrity as a filmmaker? No, I think it's the perverse, most perverse thing I can do is make a film that can have, be a John Waters film with everything I believe in and play in a shopping mall in Kansas is really devious. <laughs> uh, now let's talk about the cast. You have uh, Ricky Lake and you mentioned Johnny Depp. We have Johnny Depp. Who's this, this is like a 21 Jump Street well, Johnny yeah, Depp. He's, he, he is a teen idol, but I think he's a very good actor, Johnny, and I think he was brave to make this movie to make fun of that image. Mm -hmm. He's embarrassed about being a teen idol, but I was shocked. You go out on the street with him and girls are like running backwards, <laughs> weeping. When we, when we made the movie... No, they're not, are yes, they? Yes, the girls offered the Teamsters on the set money to buy his sewage from his trailer. Oh, I'm see, not See, now, there you go. You're no, right well, back in that stuff again. But I tell you, you know, I told him, next time you have the flu, tell me we'll open up oh. a store, you know. <laughs> Although screened out of competition at the 1990 Cannes Film Festival and given favorable critical assessments, Cry Baby was ultimately not a box office success, an unfortunate issue that would plague all of Waters' films for the remainder of the 90s, making it increasingly difficult for Waters to secure funding for future projects. 
Well, the books do just as well these days, and also they do better. And uh, I get to tell stories. So, and it's just me. I don't have to go raise money and have, t you don't have test screenings for books. Imagine if you did. Water's puckish skewering of American hypocrisy had become more subtle and less confrontational in his later cinematic output, which caused some fans of his earlier work to dismiss the director as overtly pandering to the Hollywood system. Other viewers regarded this trajectory as a natural process of maturity and refinement. Arguably, the ideal synthesis of these distinct modes of filmmaking occurs in 1994's Serial Mom a cheeky gallows satire revolving around the facade of suburban propriety, the perpetual presence of true crime scandals in the mid-90s news cycle, and the banal atrocities of upper-middle-class motherhood. Tell me the truth, Mom. Really, it's okay with me. Are you a serial killer? Chip, the only serial I know anything about is Rice Krispies. Kathleen Turner, whose trademark husky voice and smoldering beauty had been utilized to great effect in roles as a femme fatale or a hapless screwball comedienne, plays the role of the unassumingly murderous housewife Beverly Sutton, who showers her teenage children and good-natured dentist husband in syrupy platitudes while secretly tormenting her high-strung neighbor with lewd prank calls and disposing of numerous bodies who have committed slight infractions against her notions of common decency. Is this the cocksucker residence? God damn you, stop calling here. Isn't this 4215 pussy way? You bitch! Now let me check the zip code. 212, fuck you! Before Kathleen Turner was officially cast, Tuesday Weld, Meryl Streep, and, in what would have been surely an altogether different but bonkers direction, Julie Andrews were all considered for the part of Beverly. John Waters has claimed that Serial Mom was his favorite film he ever directed. It contains some of his trademark stunt casting, such as cameos by Joan Rivers, Suzanne Somers, and the feminist rock band L7 masquerading as a group called Camel Lips, with each member sporting crudely exaggerated vulvas on stage. Beverly's kills are elaborate riffs on the dangers of domesticity, including a savage beating with a leg of lamb, a gruesome evisceration via fire poker, and the perils of a fallen air conditioner. All the while, Beverly pontificates about the virtues of bird watching and minding one's manners. Waters manages to sneak an actual handmade greeting card from John Wayne Gacy on screen, folded inconspicuously into Beverly's secret stash of serial killer correspondences. Throughout Serial Mom, the buxom sexploitation films of Doris Wishman and the gore odysseys of Herschel Gordon Lewis are seen on various television sets. An assortment of unique public relations strategies were implemented to promote the release of Serial Mom, particularly in the queer neighborhoods of San Francisco. A party at popular gay bar The Stud encouraged participants to bring various instruments worthy of a killer mom's approval from their kitchen, powder room, or sewing room. Articles apprehended at the party included shears, knitting needles, a turkey thermometer, miscellaneous toilet accessories, and multiple butcher's cleavers. On a 2008 bonus featurette made for the official DVD release, the cast and crew of Serial Mom meditate on how the film had prescient insights into the nature of American celebrity. 
you know, I used to go to trials. Um, Serial Mom ended that for me. Whenever I make a movie about one of my obsessions, it's over. I don't do it anymore. Serial Mom, I don't think, was so much about about focusing on a serial killer so much as the celebrity. I mean, I actually knew a serial killer. Yeah, I, I knew one, and I and I knew him while he was killing. I just didn't know it at the time. His name was Tony Costa, and he lived in Provincetown. Um, and he was killing one winter that I was that I was there. He was taking tourist girls. It was a winter, and he was taking tourist girls out to the next town, Truro, to look at his marijuana patch. And then he was cutting them up and burying them. So, and I didn't know it. And I, you know, I just thought he was sort of a likable guy around town. I didn't. I mean, we weren't best buds, but I did know him, and I liked him. Coinciding with the release of Serial Mom, Waters was becoming more prolific as a conceptual artist, working primarily in photography, sculpture, and installation. His work encompasses found images sourced from gay pornography, reappropriated film stills, bespoke figurines, and highly curated assemblage. In 2018, his first retrospective, Indecent Exposure, launched at the Baltimore Museum of Art. One of the most talked about pieces included in the retrospective was a film called Kitty Flamingos, featuring school children doing a table reading of a censored Pink Flamingo script. Indecent Exposure also featured three peep show booths, each equipped with a chair and a box of Kleenex, and screens that would play Waters' rarely seen earliest films, which he made as a teenager. The Baltimore Museum of Art would further pay homage to Waters' indelible influence on the city in 2021. There is nothing more Baltimoreese and John Waterese than this. The Baltimore Museum of Art just dedicated a gender-neutral bathroom to the maker of hairspray, pink flamingos, and crybaby. The museum says John is a generous donor. The four new gender-neutral bathrooms are located right there on the first floor of the museum. And you know this was John's idea. They thought I was kidding, but I wasn't. No, I, I really wanted the restrooms to be named after me. Now, why? Public restrooms make all people nervous. They're unpredictable, sometimes attract perverts, and they're fueled by accidents, just like my favorite contemporary art. Waters' infatuation and simultaneous disdain for the pretentious social climbing of the art world undoubtedly influenced his next feature, 1998's Pecker, an ultimately lighthearted and good-natured critique of creative commodification and the price of sacrificing one's authenticity. Featuring appearances from internationally acclaimed photographers such as Cindy Sherman and Greg Gorman, Pecker satirizes the vacuous sycophants that circle contemporary gallery spaces, the vampiric agents and dealers that traffic in what Waters would refer to as bad, bad taste, and the importance of remaining true to one's origins. And our next movie is Pecker, a comedy by John Waters about a kid from Baltimore whose candid snapshots become the rage of the New York art world. This seems like a setup for a satire of art dealers and critics, but the film is actually more interested in Pecker's strange friends and family back in Baltimore. Pecker, whose nickname comes because he used to peck at his food when he was a kid, is played by Edward Furlong, and his girlfriend Shelley is played here by Christina Ricci. You can't work every second of your life, you know. Okay, but I don't have all day for your stupid art. Pecker puts on an exhibit in the sandwich shop where he works and is accidentally discovered by a hotshot New York art dealer played by Lily Taylor. I'm in town for a meeting with the Baltimore Museum and I saw your flyer. Your pictures are amazing. They're the real thing. 
Pecker's bleary photographs of rats fucking in an alley, his sister bartending at the local go-go boy watering hole, where teabagging is technically not permitted but seldom preventable, and his eccentric Mimama's talking Virgin Mary statue make him an overnight sensation in New York City. Initially enchanted by his newfound stardom, Pecker soon realizes the toll that overexposure can have on his personal affairs, and chooses to forsake the minimalist chic of New York for the eccentric, lopsided charm of his family in Baltimore. All aboard the Degenerate Express. It's time for this week's special guest. Here at Pure Garbage, we hope to cultivate a network of community and care by harnessing the radical queer power of the putrid. Pure Garbage is titillated and beyond ecstatic to welcome the diabolical man behind the curtain, the wizard of waste, the rancid genesis for this humble program, aboard the Degenerate Express this week. A mere month after we conducted this interview, John Waters would formally announce to his eager disciples of dirt across the globe that he was adapting his 2022 debut novel, Liarmouth, into a feature film, his first since 2004's A Dirty Shame. The protagonist, Marcia Sprinkle, steals airport luggage for a living and is revulsed by the act of human fornication. It is an unmitigated delight to have had the opportunity to chat with the Duke of Dirt, the King of Kink, the Sultan of Sleaze himself, Mr. John Waters. Certainly, I saw Mink, well, I'll go through them. Uh, Mink Stole, I see all the time. We just did the Calvin Klein commercial together. We took acid together when we were 70 years old for my last book, uh, Mr. Know-It-All. Uh, Mary Vivian Pierce, the only person that's been in every single one of my films, I still see. She, uh, she's had quite a life. She had a brain tumor. She had a lot of health issues, but she's great. She lived in Nicaragua. She's kind of an old bohemian. And uh, she's well and alive and well. I saw her right before I came up to Provincetown for the summer. Uh, Bob Skidmore, who was my juvenile delinquent friend, he's the, he's the mailman in the movie. I visited him in a retirement community. Um, let's see, Minkster, who else? Uh, Pat Moran is my dearest friend. I see her all the time in Provincetown. She's who cast the movie, and she was in it also. Um, who else? And unfortunately, Danny's no longer with us. It was Crackers, Edith. Cookie was having a big revival right now with her writing. The LA Times just gave her a great review and her writing has just been re-released. Um, so that's it. David Lockery, a lot of people. You know, David is the very first person ever that had dyed blue hair, though. And now you can get it at the right aid and go down. And your mother probably has dyed blue or pink hair. But um, then they couldn't even leave the house. They had to strip it with ultra blue so it was white and then dye it with... Uh, I think David used India ink and Mink used red magic marker. <laughs> but then, though, they couldn't leave the house when they had that because it wouldn't come out. You know, we, they had to live their real lives like that. They, they basically could not leave the house. People would scream at them, throw stuff at them. I mean, it was a very different time. Speaking of Cookie's new collection, Walking Through Clear Water in a Pool Painted Black, some of those writings or essays are included in the Criterion edition of Pink Flamingos that's coming out. Is that correct? Yes, and then I think she tells a story about when her mother found the script for Pink Flamingos and called me Beelzebub. Nowadays, people say me, tell me their parents, or their, it must be their grandparents showed them the movies, which is, I still think they could be arrested. We have uh, deleted footage that I hadn't even seen the, for 50 years. It's pretty funny, but my favorite part of it 
is the uh, the new stuff we shot, where we actually went to the houses where we shot, like the Marbles house or the, the, the people that now own the house where the trailer we left in the woods on their lawn is, and tell them about the film and their reaction is pretty amazing. And they're really good sports, but it's, it's pretty great. And we go through the house uh, where, where Mink and, and David lived in the movie, where I lived with Mink in real life. And it's almost exactly the same. And we cut back and forth from the movie today. Uh, and a punk rock kid lives there. So it's a pretty good, pretty good host. I, I'm thinking that if Edie was still around today, she would probably be, uh, you know, like a reality television icon, like real egg wives of Baltimore or something. Maybe, you know, I did a, a kind of the most, I think the most sentimental thing I ever wrote was in Carsick in the beginning. I have a fictitious rides that I imagine the best it could be and the worst it could be. And one of them is that when I'm hitchhiking, Edith Massey picks me up and she's still alive and lives in Kansas. So that was a great way to kind of revisit her because sometimes I dream that she's still alive and I run into her. Well, I don't think anybody copies me at all, but I think certainly, I don't know, I, I think Todd Salance, I think Harmony Corinne, I think Gaspar Noe, Bruno Dumond. Uh, there's a lot of filmmakers, that movies that I really love. I don't think they're like mine, but they certainly push the envelope and, uh, and, and cause trouble. And I'm still looking for those movies. Well, it's a different world completely. Uh, one thing, pay your music rights. That's the main problem I had that I never knew about. If you film something, a documentary, and a music's playing in the background, you can't use that footage unless you pay for the rights, which is roughly $30,000 every time you have a needle drop. So get your music rights paid or it will be hell later. That's my best piece of advice. Can you tell me any details about Fruitcake, which is the Christmas film you plan to make with Johnny Knoxville and Parker Posey? Um, it was developed a long, long time ago, and it never happened. Um, it still could happen one day. We'll see, but it's certainly not definite. Um, it was a terribly wonderful children's Christmas adventure about a family of meat thieves, and uh, they get caught on Christmas Eve trying to supply stolen meat to their community and how they get the meat back and have a happy Christmas. Uh, it's sort of based on a real thing we have in Baltimore. People knock on your door and say, meat man, and you come down and you order like, you know, a pound of uh, turkey, and then they steal it and you pay half of what's on the label. Oh, they have plenty. I'm in Baltimore. They go to bars. They come in with all stolen meat and a little refrigerator on wheels. It's really common in Baltimore. Now, before the pandemic, I don't know if the pandemic put, like everything else, put a, put a damper on that particular business or not. Congrats on the, the star of the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which I just read about yesterday. I was going to ask who you would most like to be placed between or next to if you had a choice in the matter. I wish I was near Alvin the Chipmunk, but I don't think that you get to pick where you are. And I don't care where you are, but somebody in the Fishbowl article, which I think kind of broke the story in Baltimore, uh, somebody commented, I heard, I didn't see it, but the writer told me that somebody said, well, now he's even nearer to the gutter. I mean, I still get all the tabloids, but they have no power anymore. I mean, the Inquirer and the Globe and stuff, they don't really cause much trouble anymore because nobody reads them. And they're, they cost like $6 or something, well, you know. Uh, so I think that the time of those tabloids having so much uh, power are over, but I still get them to see. But I love that the, the editor once said, they said, why do you always write about stars when they're failing? And he said, because our readers are failing which I thought was a very honest, good answer to that question. Um, you know, I still get the New York Post delivered every day, but it's too political. You know, when, they, when, the, when the headlines are just all political against Biden, that's not much fun. 
Hmm. Well, always Justin Bieber. You know, I'm still a big Justin Bieber fan. And we did a TV show once a long, long time ago, and he drew on my mustache, and it was on every paper in London. So I, I'm still a Justin Bieber fan. I, I wish I could do a duet with him and Orabel Peck, a threesome. But Orabel, I was the master of ceremonies for his show at, in Denver for 7,000 people, which was great fun. I'm a big fan of Orabel's. I'd be remiss not to mention that one of our presenting sponsors for this podcast is Double Scorpio, which is a farm to disco queer owned Texas based uh, VHS cleaner company. And uh, one of the taglines that we're, we might be using for this series is uh, for a wholesome cinematic experience, choose Double Scorpio, wholesome with a capital H. <laughs> well, certainly my films could could go in there. You know, I uh, yes, definitely. I've been accused of having faulty toilet training by The New York Times. So hopefully I don't think that's true. But uh, who knows? I certainly have had scatology. Certainly in my book, Liar Mouth, there, there is a character that feels that she has conquered the need to eliminate, which is something I wish I could. Uh, yeah, same here. I was going to ask you more about Marsha Sprinkle, who is the protagonist of your recent debut novel, Liar Mouth. And uh, she's an airport luggage thief with a strong aversion to sex and bowel movements. And I was wondering if, uh, you know, anyone throughout your life had inspired any of her behavioral patterns at all. No, I, I mean, I, I once was in an airport with my friend Pat Moran and she picked up the wrong suitcase and we were halfway up the steps, but it was an accident. And then I realized how easy it would be to steal suitcases doing the exact same thing. Uh, no, I don't know anybody that's exactly like Marcia, but I can imagine people are. That's what I do for a living. So even though she's kind of a horrible person in the book, it's fun to hang out with her in your mind just to see how crazily she will react to things. I hope that's if the book's a success. Yeah, she's she's but she's humor impaired. You know, she she doesn't think anything about herself is funny. And that's always the people that are the funniest when they don't realize how crazy they are. If you were to release another film in Odorama, I was going to ask what fragrances you would think you would might use to capture the spirit of the times. Well, I talked more with Criterion about I thought since they did polyester and we had to develop new smells for the new Odorama card, I said we should do all their films like art films like. Bresson films, and what does minimalism smell like, of single breath mint? Or what does the depression of Ingmar Bergman's films smell like, rotten cabbage, you know? And I could do all the ad campaigns, like the seventh seal, take a sniff and jump off a cliff. Just come up with all sorts of odorama ideas for every single movie and try to carry the essence of what they would smell like. That's incredible. Yeah, thinking of uh, the donkey in the Bresson film or, uh, you know, Salo or anything like that, there's really... Yeah, Salo, that would be good. <laughs> I just read a great article about the kids that were in it. They were all underage and they had to pretend they were having sex and eat shit, even though it was chocolate. They all said they had the best time. They had Pasolini would yell cut and they'd all burst out laughing and how much fun they had and how great he was to them and everything, which just goes to show, you know, the kids that were all in my movies, they all turned out fine. So, you know, just... Make a fucked up movie with your family and you'll stay together. Yeah, put the baby in the refrigerator and ask questions later. Well, that baby, I know. And I, I always thought the baby was a boy, but it was a girl. And she told me she's fine. She said she doesn't even remember it. But that I did feel guilty because I put the baby back in the refrigerator for a second take when, when she was screaming. But she doesn't remember. So, so I said to her, it's not like she has sex in refrigerators or anything and then flashback or anything. No, she has no memory. And she's good friends with all the people. Her mom was our friend. Her mom was there on the set. It wasn't anything that idiot. Well, yeah, and it's not like it was in the oven. <laughs> right, that's true. But I did have another actress stick her head in the oven, but it wasn't really on.
Um, Jean is great. She was an actress. She was quite large. Um, she was not one bit uptight about doing nudity. She was funny. She was great. She was kind of a scary lady in real life. Uh, she was quite aggressive and funny. And uh, she was a team player. We all loved her. We hung around with her a lot. She was. Uh, she couldn't have been greater to work with. And I knew her kids. And when she died, it was very sad. But uh, she, uh, I liked her a lot. That's all. She was just another Dreamland player that fit in quite well. Uh, do you have an all-time favorite piece of pornography is a question that I've been meaning to ask you. I would say Jeff Stryker. He's my favorite porn star. I saw Power Tool recently. That one is pretty phenomenal. It's good. And I know Jeff. And, you know, he is straight. And uh, I mean, straight enough. And uh, and we're friends. And we used to go out to eat. And people would be so stupefied when they would see us walking up the street together. I always felt like Jerry. No, I felt like Don Knotts with Anita Ekberg. I've always loved Don Knotts, and I, I tried to get him to be my date for the premiere of Pecker, and his agents were really uptight and everything, and his daughter now writes me, and she knew that story, and she said, he probably would have done it, his agents didn't get it. Just to get out of the limo with him on my arm would have been pretty funny. And now he looks just like Mick Jagger. I want to talk about Flamingos Forever, too, you know, a project that, you know, didn't make it to production. I think it made it, made it to development, right? It made it to, well, did it make it to, never even made to development, I don't think. But it did make it to a book, because the script is published. Um, so it came out that way. It wasn't a total loss. But uh, Divine was going to do it. He wasn't crazy about doing it either, because he was so weary of talking about the shit-eating scene. Even though he didn't do that in the sequel, he wrote off in the giant turd like Thief of Baghdad at the end, I believe. I think probably people have asked every possible question they could about Divine. Um, he was not like the character of Divine at all. I mean, he used the rage he had from being hassled so much in school and growing up and getting beat up. And the teachers were just as evil to him as the bullies. They were worse bullies because they, they enabled the bullies. Uh, he used that rage to play that character, but Divine was certainly not like the Divine in Pink Flamingos or Female Trouble. Uh, and Divine loved that he got really great reviews later in life, playing the exact opposite of that image in playing an alcoholic housewife in polyester or a loving mother in hairspray. And if he had lived, he probably would have been the grandmother in a dirty shame. Um, he would have, I hope, still worked with me always because he was such a part of, uh, of our team, a huge, huge part. Yeah, and I'm not sure if I mentioned this earlier, but we did have the pleasure of talking with Mink in Atlanta earlier this year and just hearing stories about your enduring friendship has really been lovely. Well, you saw we were the Calvin Klein campaign. You saw that, right? <laughs> that was just recently, yeah. And we also took LSD again together when we were 70 years old for my last book, which we hadn't done it together for 50 years. That was a good experience, too. It seemed like I was reading that chapter yesterday, and I think that the Juliet of the Spirit soundtrack for an acid trip sounds ideal 100%. Oh, it worked again. That's the thing. I had never really listened to that album in years, and so I brought all the music that we used to trip with, and it all still worked perfectly. It was, it was the same, and this acid was even stronger than we had it in the 60s. So I don't need to do it again, but it was a really great day, and it brought Mink and I even closer, I think. Glad to hear that. Yeah, I think there was some funny anecdote floating around about like uh, Mink being frustrated during an early shoot and like throwing a saxophone at you or something like that. Um, I think I she, that's the, I think she did in Pink Flamingos, I think because we had messed up her room. I think she threw the saxophone down the steps in Pink Flamingos. But Divine always said that. I didn't know if it was at me or David Lockery or I'm not sure to who. It was in some kind of rage, but we all had way more rage then.
Yeah, I don't remember whose saxophone, though, it was. It was probably Vincent's, and he wouldn't have liked that because he's the only one I know that played a saxophone. It was her boyfriend at the time, and he was uh, Vincent Brenio, who did all the production design for my movies, and he went on to do The Wire and lots of shows. Well, they still say that it's okay now to wear white after Memorial Day. No, to wear white after Labor Day. I disagree. I'm right wing on that. That's the only fashion law that I still believe in. Uh, you can wear winter white. That's wool. Uh, so whenever I see people defying that rule, I just think they had bad parents. No, not. Well, I mean, all the things I have, like the Christmas tour and the John Water Summer Camp and the Punk Rock Festival and the commencement speech and the different spoken word shows I'm doing and all those I can talk about, but I can't talk about any long-term big projects. So a, I don't want to because it curses it, but you'd have to talk about something after you do it for so long and so many times. It's in my contract. So, But before, it curses it because it isn't real yet, and it might be. And uh, until it is, there's no point talking about it because it kind of evaporates. It makes it go away, I think. Any of those things where I don't give away my material, you know, why would I, I don't get Twitter? Why would you give away all your jokes? What would I put in my books? What would I put in my shows if I just gave away all my material every day for free? What is the deal with the John Waters summer camp this year? Is that, when is that happening? It's in September. It's already sold out. It's the fifth year. And this year, the counselors are Deborah Harry and Colleen Fitzpatrick, who played her daughter in Hairspray, who went on to be Vitamin C, the pop star. Uh, each year we had different ones. Last year was Kathleen Turner and uh, Patricia Hearst. I'm there every year, Mink Stoles every year, and people come and live as my characters for four days. It's pretty amazing. Well, you're from my movies, and you come, and you do a meet and greet, and you get interviewed on stage, and then you, uh, Kathleen judged a bad white shoe after Labor Day contest. Uh, Patricia Hearst judged a, uh, a bug dance, uh, the dance where you catch a disease, very COVID, that was in Hairspray. Uh, Ricky Lake and I judged a twist contest. Uh, there's all different events that they do each year. One year we told a scary story, a sexy story. This year we have another thing we're going to tell. So we tell a story. And then Mink usually does, uh, always does a meet and greet. And then she judges some. She does an activity too. We all do different activities, but it's different days over the four, per- of the four days. And people come from all over the world. They bring them in on buses. They give them liquor. <laughs> it's, it's quite mixed. It's all ages. People get married at it. It's amazing. Well, I don't, I'm not guilty about anything that brings me pleasure, really. I mean, there used to be a column in Film Commenter with an American film magazine called Guilty Pleasures, where, where filmmakers always put their exploitation films they love. Well, I wrote the column, but I did all art films <laughs> because they're the ones I was guilty about liking. I thought my fans might be upset, but I really was a fan of uh, Bresson or uh, Joanna Hogg or that kind of filmmaker. So um, I, I don't believe you should have pleasures guilt about pleasures unless you're a mass murderer or something, unless your pleasures are the suffering of others. Um, to me, I, I'm secure in my taste. I don't have to defend it. Yeah, I was actually watching Multiple Maniacs for the first time recently. And during the the rosary job scene, I kept thinking of like Winter Light by Bergman. There was just like a really strong, tangible connection there. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's the first reaction everyone has watching that. But I thank you for that. <laughs> I just remember the poor priest's face at the premiere that let us in and didn't know what we shot. And he said, please never reveal where you shot this. And I never did. And I never have. And to be honest, I'm not even sure I know where that church is anymore.
Thank you, thank you, most depraved listeners, for tuning in to Pure Garbage Episodes 1 through 7. We are taking some time to incubate our eggs and change our soiled diapers for the holidays, but we hope to be back with more thrills, chills, and certainly spills for y'all in the new year. Perhaps a fresh horde of degenerates are on the horizon. Or perhaps we have some unfinished business with the legacy of Mr. John Waters. Some of you might be saying, we need to do a deep dive on Cecil B. Demented, Kamikaze, you dumb bitch. Or, how can I continue to listen to your sultry tones in the meanwhile? All will be revealed in the fullness of time. For now, I'm your regional filth correspondent, and devoted trash collector Kamikaze Jones. And this has been pure garbage. An oral examination of John Waters. Jones, produced by John Dean and Kamikaze Jones, with original music by, you guessed it, Kamikaze Jones and Christian Ruggiero. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors OutTV and Double Scorpio. For a wholesome cinematic experience, choose Double Scorpio. Subscribe, rate, and review our garbage on wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Pure Garbage Pod. He's pure.